For February 20th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 451. You can never tell anyone that I told you it was good. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and talking. You know, Overthinking It is a group of people who have been friends for for 15 years or more. And uh, we just love hanging out together. We love recording this podcast together, and we love sharing it with you. So uh, I'm your host, Matt Rather, and uh, your co-host tonight is Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. This is one of our storied two-handers in that I tell stories about them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The best, the best stories are your stories, right? The stories that you tell yourself. Sitting, around, sit, sitting around that lonely campfire of one. <laughs> <laughs> the stories that you, that you tell yourself, the lies that you tell yourself in order to just keep putting one foot uh, in front of the other day after <laughs> agonizing day. No, I, you know what? I'm obviously in no mood, Pete. So why don't you kick us? Why don't you kick us off? What's on well, your okay, mind? Well, okay. So I'm, I, have a, I have a couple weeks ago, you kicked a podcast off by asking me an overly serious uh, <laughs> Uh, trolling personal question and i have one prepared for you and also. by the way i didn't i didn't warn pete about <laughs> it beforehand i said hey pete are you good to try something unusual this week uh and he said well it's been eight years of podcasting together it's probably time to spice up this relationship and we hit record and just and just went so what you heard is uh is remarkable in its concision and suavity considering that i did not uh give him any warning uh whatsoever yeah. Now, I want to ask you my own personal trolling question. But first, you mentioned we've mentioned the stories that you tell yourselves kind of reading to yourself by the fire. And I have an actual like sort of semi-serious literary question for you that's come up in, in casual conversation over the past couple of weeks. Great. And I want uh, to hold ask on. you quick, quick. Let me load Wikipedia and I'll be able to answer <laughs> literally. Anything. It's, it's a question of taste. Here's the question. Right. So I had a friend who was trying who had to read In Memoriam by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Right. Had to read it, I believe. I think it was it was uh, required. And they were saying, how do I get into this? How do I get into this this poem? I find it very hard to get into Alfred Lord Tennyson. And I said that Alfred Lord Tennyson is a poet who is very, uh, very connected to the tradition of reading poetry out loud by the fire in such a way that the person reading the poetry like looks cool, like is sort of aggrandized by the act of reading the thing that they're reading, right? That it's sort of like, uh, it's not really poetry that you're supposed to sort of read on the page to yourself. It's poetry that you're supposed to sort of be a vessel for, to read to other people that you have some sort of paternalistic responsibility for. Um, and, and, and that was my take on it. But before we get into the, the, the overthinking it, and here's some sort of appropriate thinking it, why wouldn't somebody be into Alfred Lord Tennyson, Matt. Can you come up with any better reasons? Do you think that reason is on point? Why? Why or, would? Why would someone? Or why wouldn't? Why? Well, I mean, is the question why would someone be into Alfred I, Lord Tennyson? No, I guess like my my favorite Tennyson poem is uh, Ulysses, and mm-hmm. and it's the same. It's the same reason. It's a it's a poem designed to make uh, to make the speaker look cool, right? Yeah. Like uh, and and to make both the speaker of the poem look cool and to make the reciter of the poem poem in like uh you know some kind of social setting where um where poetry is recited uh make that person look cool uh well i what i can tell you pete is that in memoriam ahh is a poem by the british poet alfred lord tennyson (laughs) hey hey matt hey matt do you feel like there's a difference between your private and public self (laughs) uh Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be a short podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, correct. Yes. Uh yes, absolutely. I do. I do feel like there's a uh there's a difference between uh my private and public self and I actually look at that as a feature not a bug, right? I I think that there you could make the argument um a kind of a kind of simplistic uh, ethics of virtue, which I, I distinguish from virtue ethics, but like <laughs> uh, a kind of a kind of simplistic ethics 
ethics of integrity would hold that you have to be the same all the time, right? Uh, you, you, the things that you value in private should be the things that you profess to value in public. And, and I think, I think that that's crap, right? I think that, and it's, it's not only crap, it's dangerous crap. Um, there's a story in Herodotus that I refer to often on the Overthinking It podcast because we all have certain hobby horses that we come back to uh, again and again. But but this is one that was sort of influential for me intellectually growing up in that um, I trot out from time to time in, in my mind when I'm trying to make sense of a situation or where I'm trying to kind of puzzle out what I think about something, which is something I do more often than you would imagine, right? Like your opinions don't arrive fully formed like Athena springing from the head of Zeus, right? They, they are sort of built up in sedimentary layers over, uh, over time. And the the story of the ring of Gyges from Herodotus is that you know Gyges gets this ring, uh, he he can put the ring on um, and become invisible, and so he can spy on stuff. And right, uh, long story short, hijinks ensue. Right when when Gyges spies on all kinds of things, uh, affairs, uh, uh, like romantic affairs, wife cheating, like affairs of state, um, things things like this. And the the uh, moral of the story, more or less, is that there is a sphere that is appropriately private, and that there is a sphere that's um, appropriately public, and. That they're different and that maintaining a, a separation between them is actually conducive to the health and well-being of the individual and to the health and well-being of the society. So uh, I think that my my private self and my public self are different and I I – you know, I, I value that difference. And I guess the, the way I would, the way I would put it, Pete, is that like, um, it's in that word profess, right? Like the things that you care about and the things that you profess to care about. Um, because your public self is always sort of in situation, you know, is always in a set of circumstances out in the world and is responding to various, uh, fact patterns and is responding to various stimuli and things like this. If you think of, of yourself as having uh, a private self, having a sort of constitution or having a, a set of inner thoughts or having, um, values that are, uh, strongly held and that are relatively durable over time, um, that self might just kind of a priori exist, you know, and it might not, that might, uh, it might not matter the situation that you, you find yourself in though. Those things certainly can change over time. They're not like switches that you, that you flip. Whereas the public self, I think is a lot more tactical and a lot more, um, instrumental, uh, and is, is a lot more of a, is a lot more of a construction rather than something rather than, and, and, and the, I guess the slightly controversial claim that I want to make is that that's, that that's good. That's not just opportunism or, you know, what have you, that that's actually the way that it's supposed to be, that your public self is, um, uh, to a certain extent, a performance, uh, a performance for others. Right. So I have, I asked for a couple of reasons and one of the reasons and the, the most sort of serious reason and the one that is uh, going to involve the least uh, confession of things that uh, my private self has experienced recently. But don't worry, I'll get around to them because uh, I like to pull back the curtain. Well, yeah, uh, it's but- good. It's it's good because we're a confessional, uh, emotional <laughs> podcast, you know. And it's really it's like uh, Mark Marin. It's like WTF up in here where we're all just <laughs> talking about like terrible personal traumas uh, that we're going through. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do like to say with regards to sort of tactical public self that we do owe our friends uh, a bit less of a tactical approach to our discourse, right? I, I kind of see that as an intimate act of trust to speak to somebody about what you really think versus sort of instrumentally what you think is important for you to say based on the sort of tactical positioning of yourself in the world. Oh, oh sure. But at, yeah. and yet I feel like at, at the same time, you also may owe your friends a, a certain amount of dissimulation that you mm-hmm. don't owe to complete strangers, right? Like, right. Yeah, like you owe your friends to deliver bad news gently or to just not. Mm-hmm 
not deliver it. Like, you know, I don't know. Yes, you have. Uh, yes, you you are too fat for those pants. Right. <laughs> right, is, right, right. Is a thing that I'm glad my my friends don't say to me. <laughs> <laughs> though, though it may be warranted, and though a stranger might have uh, less compunction about delivering that, delivering that that unwelcome news, you know what I mean. So, so yeah. like I, this, the sort of being close, of being intimate, cuts uh, uh, cuts both ways. Right. So, so the first, so the sort of unintimate, unpersonal, or impersonal reason to ask that question is that I saw, and I'll recommend it as as a lecture, if not as a movie, uh, the the really nice uh, "I Am Not Your Negro" James Baldwin documentary, right? Which I just saw yesterday, um, and it's narrated by Samuel L. Jackson, and it is mostly James Baldwin stuff, and James Baldwin is awesome, which is great. And then there's a lot of other video clips kind of pulled around and built into montage around the piece. But one of the ideas that's put forward in the movie is the idea that Americans in our culture have an and this is written as of 1979 right so I think that it's funny because I'm saying like oh he's saying that we should do Breaking Bad but uh, what he's saying is that uh, Americans and white Americans in particular have a really big gap between our public self our public our public sort of experience self culture and our private experience self-culture and that a lot of the kind of pain and terror about encountering the other right and he doesn't use those words but i'm paraphrasing right like the blood of the pain and terror that ends up being associated with things like racism uh is out of this sort of sense of confusion and disorientation around the failure to somehow relate or reconcile your private self and your public self right the things that you participate in in society right and i hate the word society and i, I really got to come up with better shorthands for it but um but uh but the things that you participate in as part of sort of the larger culture and the larger groups of people that you run with right versus your own sort of private feelings and kind of what you think right and it's like oh you know I, it's, the classic one is like oh i think I think I should have the white picket fence and the nice house and I don't and therefore I'm a failure or therefore somebody has screwed me over or therefore like something is just wrong. Right. And then there's and there's a bunch of different ways to approach that. And I guess collapsing the public and private self is not the only way to approach it. Uh, right. And I said, like, well, you know, he said we should do Breaking Bad and that we should make a whole bunch of 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 uh, privileged white male protagonists who have to, like, lose their privilege and confront their inner beast, uh, bestial nature, which is like all of prestige television from the past, like, 15 years. But sure. All, <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. all of post Sopranos television. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Post Sopranos. Right. But at any rate, I just thought it was an interesting idea, like because I, I, I also agree that a you should always assume that everybody has private stuff going on right and private things that they like and private things that they do and and you should consider the impact of your actions on people people based not just on what they do in public but on a sort of reasonable sort of cloud of outcomes a sort of probabilistic cloud of outcomes that might result from the things that they could reasonably do in private but shouldn't really tell you about right or 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 that you shouldn't expect them to tell you about like things like oh you shouldn't have rules against various sorts of kind of sexual things because uh, as long as everything is consensual, everybody's fine because you don't know what people are doing in private and you don't want to have to talk about it, right? Like you don't have to force people to have to sort of voice to you, hey, by the way, you know, I, I kind of have this rabbit thing going on. And uh, if you kind of if you shame it or make it illegal, that's going to be like a really big impact on my happiness for no benefit to anybody. Yeah, right? I, I don't um, know. I, I just like slightly controversially. I, I, I want to say that, like, I, I feel like if you take the uh, some of the forbidden luster out of uh, out of things sexual, it's going to be a lot less exciting. Um, <laughs> you know, enough. like kids might want stop wanting to do it. Uh, if, oh. you know what I mean? If it's not, uh, uh, if it, if it's not sort of forbidden, if they're, if it wouldn't yeah. really make their parents unhappy, uh, the fact that they, uh, the fact that they do do it. So, uh, though I guess the millennials are not having sex anymore. This is a thing that I've read. Oh, is that the cool thing? In very, yeah, exactly. Like the, in, in think pieces I've read, they're not, they're not having sex. They're like Instagramming inspirational, uh, <laughs> qu- quotes or, or, or things like this. I, I had an epiphany about millennials yesterday <laughs> what, what did you discover what did you i, I realized because i was I, I was watching actually i should look up the exact name of it because god forbid anybody would uh would not get the name of this right um let's see what's it called 
It's called. Oh, so I was OK. So talk about private self. OK, we're going to go deep here. We're going to go deep into Pete's private consumption of pop culture. So yesterday I was watching the first 15 minutes of Yu-Gi-Oh! Bonds Beyond Time on Netflix. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, and Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Yu-Gi-Oh! Matt, are you, uh, are you familiar? I'm not. It's beyond it's beyond my personal canon. So I, w- I would <laughs> I would appreciate it if you could give a, a sort of an instruction uh, introduction to a non-specialist. All right. So so Yu-Gi-Oh! is a card game that's sort of roughly based on the sort of general idea of Magic the Gathering. Right. And it's by Konami. And, but the gist of it is and it's it's a phenomenal it's like a it's an origin story of tail spinian proportions. Right. <laughs> and that like there's a small child whose grandfather owns a card shop and also has sort of a puzzle in a box and has his grandson put the puzzle together, at which point the puzzle releases the spirit of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh that inhabits the child's body and sort of coexists with the child as sort of as sort of an all of me style second voice or sort of a Tyler, Tyler Durden figure. Yeah. Right. And and uh, and the pharaoh uh, is from the ancient days in which the card game was a powerful magical blood sport. And the resurgence of the card game in contemporary consumer culture is part of a nefarious plot by evil Egyptian spirits of various sorts to kind of reinstitute the old sort of shadow blood sport of ancient customizable card games. Right. And uh, and so like and so this little kid who would periodically transform between being a little kid with a high voice or a taller version of the same kid with a deep voice, one of whom is the Egyptian pharaoh, one of whom is the child, right? Like has to go and and fight in a tournament on an island against the peoples. And then there's like a, the CEO of one of the companies is also a child. It gets very complicated. But but the, the epiphany about millennials, right? Is that um, is that Yu-Gi-Oh has what they call the Millennium Items, right? And and I don't know why they were called the Millennium Items, but they are the things that don't really have anything to do with the card game of Yu-Gi-Oh. They are the MacGuffins, the magical objects, right? That each of the sort of big protagonists or antagonists may or may not have in their possession, right? And so and so Yu-Gi-Oh has the Millennium Puzzle, and uh, and and Maximilian Pegasus has the Millennium Eye, and Merrick, the evil uh, the evil kind of sorcerer from the court of the Pharaoh reincarnated, has the Millennium Rod, and there's the Millennium Ring, and I was like, wow, all of the items in Yu-Gi-Oh were trying to teach us about what the millennials were going to be the whole time, right? Like it's, it's the millennials, the millennials are a puzzle. The millennials, like they have an eye that see their watchers, right? The millennials, they, they have the rod, they want authority, right? Um, so this is perhaps not particularly meaningful to people who aren't especially interested in Yu-Gi-Oh, but it's interesting to lay that entirely entirely imagined and, and nonsense uh, epiphany about them. Like, what if Yu-Gi-Oh! is really about millennials and about the sort of ascendant new generation and what they want from society? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, certainly that would mean that with the millennials coming into the workforce, you know, joining the workforce, joining kind of like social circles of adulthood, and there just being a lot of conflict between the old generation and the new generation, that it's time to duel, duel, duel. All right. So that's my Yu-Gi-Oh! I, I guess so. I mean, do, do the millennials also want like ill-conceived public works from, you know, of like, uh, you know, of a like 1999-2000 vintage, like the Millennium Eye and in London or Millennium oh, Park yeah. in in <laughs> Chicago, right? Like, is that oh, yeah, yeah? You know, because it seemed like for a while, uh, you know, prepending Millennium uh, to whatever uh, uh, budget. Uh, appropriation you wanted, like state or municipal budget appropriation you wanted, was the way to uh, get projects through the the process, mm-hmm. the the budgeting process, and get them approved and and uh, shovel ready, as they say. Right. You know? So anyway, so I guess the real takeaway from that is that this has been a big. I just googled Millennium Highway, by the way, and of course it's a thing. It's the Road and Highways page. <laughs> Uh, photos from before the millennium photos from after the millennium a road trip through arkansas okay this this is a solid geocities page that i'm going to send you the link to right now (laughs) but the point is that i really enjoyed the 15 minutes that i watched of of Yu-Gi-Oh, beyond time and then i got bored because i don't know the other Yu-Gi-Ohs and the different generations of it i don't particularly care but 
Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! And, and Yu-Gi-Moto, as it were, were involved in another thing that happened online that's been happening on the last couple of weeks that is huge uh, and is hooked into this idea of like the private and the public self. And I and I talked to you a little bit about it, uh, Matt, before we started, which is that the the very popular Team Four Star uh, YouTube channel, which has about two hundred twenty subscribers as of this reading, and the latest video from Friday has about one point one million viewers. So it's about as popular as Girls on HBO, right? Is what is sort of the comparison I like to make. Um, and they make funny – they make parodies of Dragon Ball Z, and they've been doing it for years and years and years. And it's it's tremendously good. It's tremendously funny. Um, you get the sense that the Dragon Ball Z people are kind of on board with it because it's brought a lot of attention to Dragon Ball Z. There's been a new Dragon Ball Z TV show. But so um, so this week and, – and I'll slow it down and I'll kind of, I'll kind of bring it back and recenter this. Um, there's a new video, right, uh, from Team Four Star, which I know it's going to be a parody. I know it's going to be related to Dragon Ball Z. I know I'm going to find it pretty funny, and I know that there's going to be a million to two million other people who also think that it's funny. But we're never going to talk to each other, right? Like I'm never going to talk to any of the people. It's all it's like a million to two million people who all appreciate it privately, right, and don't appreciate it in their public life. Maybe not all, because a lot of them are probably younger. But well, maybe not. Dragon Ball's pretty old. But the point is. Or, or at least the, the video was of um, they're at the point in the Dragon Ball story, right, where the evil uh, bioengineered uh, kind of mechanical, biological, insect human, uh, Saiyan hybrid cell, right, which is sort of the greatest the greatest fighting being to have been engineered by science, kind of the pinnacle of human achievement, which regards to like conflict and fighting, right? Is this is this robot? insect that is able to absorb people and take their powers and in dragon ball this character kind of ascends in in power because he is impossible to catch right and so he goes from place to place and he absorbs things and he absorbs people and you try to catch him and fight him but you can't find him and and so he starts much much weaker than you but then he gets stronger and stronger and stronger until the point where he's like really kind of a serious problem and then he starts sort of taunting people to fight him right and he's like oh you know you if if you think you're so great you should really try to beat me but if you think you could beat me now you know let let me let me get a little stronger and then let's see if you're really strong and then you could beat me then and there's a lot of hubris right where people are like yeah whatever absorb one more thing and and get a little stronger and whatever I'll still beat you and then he absorbs the thing he becomes tremendously powerful and he beats the guy and then it's really embarrassing but the point is that cell is this like haughty overlordy character right And he's like no one can defeat me and and what he does which i think is a really fun idea uh in general is that he just is like i'm gonna destroy the world right this is like this is my next sort of mo this is like my next next thing on the agenda after pledging the countertops right is i'm gonna destroy the earth and he um and he builds a ring in the desert right a sort of fighting ring and he says for the next like week or so right or a couple weeks uh anybody who wants in the whole world can come to me in this ring and and try to beat me right and and if you beat me great i die right it's fight to the death but if nobody beats me in the next couple weeks, I'm going to destroy the world. And he just like relishes this and kind of like has a lot of fun with it, right? Cell does. And so what Team Four Star has been doing, there's usually like a couple of months or weeks. Usually, I mean, they would say, you know, it's it's usually it's often months. It shouldn't be that long. They like to think it goes faster. But like between their big videos that come out. And so uh, they're in a sort of interregnum, right? Where like the cell, it's called the cell games, right? The big fights with cell are going to happen soon because the story of the parody follows the story of the comics and the TV show. And in this sort of interregnum period, right? In the sort of like period between big official episodes, they've been doing a whole bunch of crossovers where people who do comedy related to other anime figures have been guesting, right? And and also other anime figures have been kind of uh, you know photoshopped in or like After Effects in to the Dragon Ball Z animation, so that you'll see like Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh try to fight Cell. Right, which is a great one because he's like, "Hey, I playing a children's card game," and Cell's like, "I'm down. Let's do it. Let's play a children's card game. Whatever. It's fine." Um, and it's it's kind of fun. It's fun. Uh, but but a big one happened this week, and um, and and it's something that sat with my private self, right? Uh, and um, and it's something I'm glad to be able to share. But after I share it, I kind of want to hear what you have to say, Matt, 
about like that, about like what what am I doing right now by kind of taking this experience that I had that was private and kind of putting it out there in the Internet for everyone to hear about? Because uh, it's probably not as simple as just sort of like bringing the private self public. There's probably something else that's happening. But, sure. I mean, but I, it, I, yeah. I already have a number of thoughts, as you would expect. Yeah. But, <laughs> but we, we have this has all been prolegomenon, you know, yeah. to the yeah. to the actual uh, to the actual yeah. event. And so, so, so here, here it is. Here's the big event. Here's the big event that goes down. Kenshiro from Fist of the North Star, right? Arguably the greatest uh, anime fighter of the 80s, right? Uh, he's modeled after Mad Max, um, and and he's like sort of a post-apocalyptic wanderer who knows a uh, an ancient form of martial art that allows him to use pressure points to kill people in phenomenally dramatic ways. Uh, really broke entirely new ground in terms of ripping his shirt off and screaming at the same time. It's just totally – it's like you know a lot of people who do that owe a lot to Kenshiro uh-huh. from Fist of the North Star, wow. right? And um, and Kenshiro, it's like super angry and like not that well animated, and, and, and everybody is like really super intense. And he's he's a cross between Mel Gibson and Bruce Lee. So also you know he's on crazy. on his uh, his Wikia page here, he looks like he's he's Ben Stiller doing Blue Steel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a little bit of there's a little bit of uh, Derek Zoolander in Kenshiro as well, or there's a little bit of Kenshiro in all of us. But Kenshiro is one of those figures where, like, even if a lot of contemporary people kind of don't really know who he is because his show was like a long time ago and doesn't really hold up to modern standards, he's a character of reverence, right? He's like a character that's like, oh, that's Kenshiro, right? And uh, Kenshiro's big quote. Right. Kenshiro's kind of big line that that rises above all the other lines is that Kenshiro will fight someone and like touch them in a bunch of ways. Right. Or even in just a subtle way, like on their forehead or on their on their face or something. And then the person will threaten him or laugh and then he'll go, you're already dead. And they'll be like, what? And they'll be like, oh, no. And their head will explode. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, what actually is heavily based on Kenshiro and on everything Kenshiro is based on is in Kill Bill. Right. The Buddha fist in Kill Bill. Sure. Where, where, and then that's of course also from old kung fu movies, right? But Kenshiro is a big part of passing that along. He's a big torch carrier for the idea of punching someone and then waiting a while and then having them die, right? Um, and so Kenshiro fought Cell this week uh-huh. in a YouTube channel that more than a million people watched, and uh, and yet it wasn't like a big a big entertainment news thing. But for me, this like this is huge, right? And uh, and Kenshiro fights Cell, right? And uh, and he sort of talks tough to him, and they banter a little bit. And uh, Sal refers to him as kind of a homeless man. And did you get off at the wrong bus stop? And why are you doing? You're so strange. And he, he and Kenshiro kind of touches Cell in a bunch of ways while screaming like Bruce Lee. And Cell makes fun of him. And then Kenshiro goes, "You know, you're already dead." And Cell explodes. Right. And uh, and if you know, I'm Cell, on, I'm on right? the I'm on the 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 edge of my seat. What happens next? Well, because you, you, you know that the way that these uh, sort of interstitial, these filler pieces work is that we eventually have to come back to the tonic, to the root, right? Which is that eventually the actual Cell games from Dragon Ball are going to take place and Cell is going to fight the protagonists of Dragon Ball in a very specific order of events that has been enshrined in something akin to like scriptural order, right? <laughs> By like the rereading and rereading and reinterpreting and readapting of the story over years and years and years. Um, and there's the interesting interesting thing right well if you know cell you know that cell is capable of regenerating parts of his body all right because he has namekian genes which means that you can blow cells uh, arm off you can blow his leg his, his legs off if you want and as long as some part of him is still in existence he can reform his body right it's not like it doesn't hurt but he, he like decapitating things off of cell doesn't kill him you need something stronger than that and so cell gets sort of blown up in a big pile of goo and and is like, you know, what the and he, and he and he regenerates. Right. And then and then the other joke is that, like, he starts complaining about it and he starts saying how he's going to kill Kenshiro and then he explodes again. And that's the joke. And, and the cool thing that happens there is that it ends. Right. Is that we know that 
the way that these things work, Cell is supposed to win or the other guy's supposed to walk away because if Cell loses, then the story ends. But there's so much reverence for Kenshiro as a character that they that they don't they don't have Ken, they, they're not willing to let Kenshiro be the butt of the joke. Right. Even though in, in a sort of like versus fight kind of way, there's no way that Kenshiro can beat Cell. Right. So anyway, so that that's and that's the excitement about it right? is that like Kenshiro gets to stand there and watch Cell explode over and over again. And it's almost like a masters at the golf. It's like a, it's like a senior day at the NHL where they let Gordie Howe skate. Right. Like it's like, you know, it's like, you know, like he gets to shoot a goal. You know, he's it's like uh, when they let uh, you know, let Yogi Berra throughout the first pitch in a baseball game. Where it's like, you know, it's going to be a strike and no one's going to talk about how Yogi Bear can't throw anymore. Right. You kind of hope that he's got a little bit of zip in the throw, obviously not with us anymore. But that's the idea that is there's sort of like a, a reverence to something senior. And I feel like it's pretty sophisticated. And I kind of had wished that it had been a bigger deal. And I texted a link to it to one of my coworkers who I know likes anime. And he said, oh, they're great, right? Because uh, I thought... Referring to... Referring to Team, Team Four, Star. Four Star. And the parody videos of, of DBZ. Yeah. So right. I sent it to him because I felt like this was... This had risen to the level of being accessible to anybody who likes anime, right? At least a dude, right? Anybody who likes shonen fighting anime uh, in, in a sort of like stereotypical masculine boyish way, right? Um uh, which, of course, a lot of women include in that. But it's it's a very specific subgenre, right? Although a big one. And I was like, well, anybody who knows anything about Dragon Ball or Fist of the North Star is going to find this funny. And he's like – and it's basically like, oh, no, I've been watching it the whole time, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Like, like I've been watching it the whole time. You've been watching it the whole time. There's probably multiple people that you ride the subway on with, right, who've been watching this also. Yeah, who, never who are – talk about it with any of these people. They may, wa- they may be watching it right now while you're yeah. on the subway with them. Exactly. Exactly. So there you go. So I laying my bare my soul here of my of my secret anime YouTube watching anime parody YouTube watching. Um, and, and I'm asking you basically to tear it apart, to just rend it to shreds in front of me and just sort of show me what its guts look like. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I, I have a lot of um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts and there's the the idea, the idea of the the uh the sort of the solitary individual and the idea of the collective or group experience and how those two things relate to one another um, is interesting. And I think Tennyson said it best in his poem in memoriam when he wrote, <laughs> uh, I, I, envy not in any moods, the captive void of noble rage, the linnet born within the cage that never knew the summer woods. I envy not the beast that takes his license in the field of time, unfettered by the sense of crime, to whom a conscience never wakes. Nor what may count itself as blessed, the heart that never plighted troth, but stagnates in the weeds of sloth, nor any want-begotten rest." I hold it true, whate'er befall, I feel it when I sorrow most. Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. This is, I mean, it's actually the the second half is the is the or I guess the last quatrain is the like the greatest hits. Um, Yeah, but I I did tell my friend that that Tennyson is great at two lines. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can beat Tennyson in just two lines, right? He's like one punch man of 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 poetry, right? But uh, (laughs) Um, that, like, yeah, there there's a great. yeah, this from memory, so it might come out in fits and starts. But like at the beginning of Ulysses, when old Ulysses ruling in Ithaca uh, gets sick of this crap and decides he's going to like paddle out in a canoe for adventures, you know, in uh, in untold reaches of the world. Um, yeah. it, uh, it little profits that an idle king. Uh, ma- uh, uh, oh God! You see, I told you it was going to come out. Um, uh, in fits and starts, but the the important part is, is later. He says, matched with an aged wife. He's describing his situation his situation in Ithaca, married to Penelope and ruling the Ithacans. Matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I mean, there's there's your Tennyson for you. Yeah. How can you not like? How can yeah. you not like Tennyson? But um, the the 
Okay, so so, but the but the, the thing first, you just read yeah, the passage from In Memoriam. Can you that, give a little the, bit the, of context? Yeah, the first half of the first half of that. This is kind of like the actually In Memoriam is also where the phrase re, uh, "nature red in tooth and claw," which has that trochaic "nature red in tooth and claw" uh, uh, rhythm rhythm to it that gets made famous by uh, uh, by Charles Darwin, or at least in association with Charles Darwin. Um, anyway, so uh, the idea that like. Um, I, from my vantage point of like uh, high poetic sensibility, I envy neither. Um, uh, I envy neither the person who who knew freedom and then was captured, uh, nor the um, nor the person who uh, was born into captivity and never knew. Uh, never knew freedom or the, the beast, uh, the licentious beast out there in the world being rapacious and whatever, um, who doesn't like, who doesn't have, uh, who doesn't have a conscience, right? And the conscience is sort of, the conscience is the internalization of, the society, right? Like the conscience is the, the voice of the parents or the voice of the lawgivers or the voice of, you know, uh, uh, the, law the little before. Jiminy Cricket. Right, exactly. <laughs> like the right little Jiminy Cricket who sits on your shoulder and lets your conscience be your guide, right? Like um, that, that, that that is kind of an external thing and it's, it's necessarily social because like you don't need a conscience if you, uh, you don't need a conscience in a state of nature and you don't need a conscience if you're, if you're um, if you're all alone, it seems like the two things are it seems like the two things are unrelated. But I think that there is uh, I think that there is a, a similar sense in terms of what you're saying. Um, and there are kind of multiple ironies. There are like layer upon layer of ironies in in what you're talking about. Um, the idea that the idea that we could all be watching the same thing on our uh, on our iPhones on our like morning train commute um, at the same time, and yet somehow we're not watching it together. You know, mm. uh, I, I I envy not the linnet born within the cage that never knew the summer woods. You know what I mean? Like I I. Uh, uh the, the the there is something um there's something important i think about not just loving but professing to love and this this is what what tennyson is is talking about in this particular canto of in memoriam um not just uh you know not just um not just sort of loving someone or loving a thing or like being a partisan of something, but like sort of standing up, standing up to be, uh, standing up to be counted. Now you look at those, uh, here's, here's another way of looking at it though. You look at those numbers, right? And as, as you say, it's very, uh, it's, it's instructive that like this is about the viewership of your average episode of girls or actually like your average episode of girls in its heyday in the first couple years of girls. I'm, I'm sure those figures have fallen off, uh, in ensuing years. And this is important because we are, uh, we've I just embarked upon, I guess, or we're about to embark upon. Um, I, I, you know, I don't really follow it anymore, but, but, uh, I've noticed in the press uh, a lot of Lena Dunham and a lot of like uh, pictures of those four actresses together. Um, we're about to embark upon the the final season uh, of Girls, in which you know I don't know the girls usher in the millennium, I suppose, and there's a, a, a thousand years of peace and justice. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't want to just rag on uh, the reason. No, 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 I, no, I don't. I, yeah. I don't want to rag on just, Girls. The the, but, the the important thing is that Girls gets gallon upon gallon of critical ink spilled, right? Uh, yes, about exactly. It. And it is a, as a cultural phenomenon uh, by the numbers, it is as niche. As a set of YouTube videos, uh, you know, p- uh, parodying and uh, uh, parodying Dragon Ball Z and other uh, classic anime of this type, right. right? Like it's it's no more. And, and so, what what sort of what sort of makes it intrinsically? Uh, what sort of makes it intrinsically worthy? And this is, I mean, I you know, I don't know. This is all. This is sort of the uh, the it's kind of the other side, right? Because this the it gets it's one that gets described a lot. Mad Men was described a lot at the same time uh, as being a sort of niche uh, cultural phenomenon, uh, which the media the media elites the elites 
the bad elites are out and they're right. they're fixated on i know um, this is the cell games the bad elite is waiting in the ring for anyone to challenge him or else he's going to destroy the world oh you mean humans well Fair yeah enough. but but i mean if you're in if you're in uh if you're in that, that's the frieza arc that's not the cell arc look, that's I, not elitism. i mean if if you work in publishing like if you work at the new york times or new york magazine or any of those other outlets with new york in the title i i have bad news for you which is you are already dead yeah. <laughs> I was definitely going to go like half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All of the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the Light Brigade. Charge for the guns, he said. But they were already dead. How can you not love Tennyson? I mean, yeah. I know, it's great. Um, but the, uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, I don't know. There, there is a, there is a sort of a set, I think there's a set of ironies here that, ha- that has to do with, uh, with a couple things. Um, what counts as an experience and what counts as an individual or a shared experience, right? Uh, what kinds of experiences need to be worked through, dealt with, talked about by the culture, right? And, um, and who gets to decide that and, and how are those kind of, how are those kind of judgments adjudicated, you know? Um, and, uh, and there was a third one and, and I, I forget it, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Do you, do you have thoughts about this? Do you do you feel? Uh, let me let me ask you this. In terms of your personal experience of of this thing, of being a part of a uh, you know prestige drama size or prestige half hour comedy sized audience um, for uh, what apparently is a, a very well produced um, animated parody of a popular animated property, right? Uh, do you feel like you've been slighted or that, you, that like the, the culture at large is sort of slagging off your, uh, your experience or do you feel like it's, do you feel like you are, um, you know, uh, better off, uh, for being outside of the glare of all of this, uh, oh, me- media man. attention? Well, I don't think the culture really owes me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I would say is, and I, and I think I, by the way, I just want to sort of mention it because I don't think we should go into it, but I think a lot of what we're talking about is related to the big PewDiePie scandal that happened this week. Right. With like when, and this idea, and I think it has to do with conscience, right? Because that idea that, that conscience is an internalization of the sort of social voice is, is important when you consider how much people are. Uh, participating in kind of media communities in which they watch by themselves and they talk about it by themselves, right? Like the watching and the talking is all private. And 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 the, as such, how then does it interact with conscience, right? Like if people become sort of increasingly private in the way that they even socialize, and that's sort of interesting, a sort of anonymous private socialization, which seeks to sort of fill the need, but doesn't do it uh, in, in line with some of the or other sorts of social phenomena that we've come to rely on uh, in, in various sorts of ways, or at least expect. Um, I don't feel like the culture owes me a big conversation about, well, Dragon Ball Z at all. And and Dragon Ball, certainly not Dragon Ball Z, a bridge. Now, on overthinking it, I like to say never apologize for what you love, right? I come to this site because I want to talk about these things. I want to share these things with people. And generally speaking, you can find people who at least have the spirit that if they don't even share a specific interest with you, they at least have the spirit that they get excited about the things that you're excited about. And that's kind of a way to socialize, a way to make this into the, the public self. What I would so that that's sort of our that's the sort of way we sort of hack the planet on this, right? But what I would say is that it's not about, and I think this is the, this is a similar thing to what uh, James Baldwin would would potentially say, although not on this topic, right? Which is that like the culture catching up with the uh, the the gaps between the private and public self is or in this case the sort of the private the private enjoyment of something that could be a public piece of the culture. It's not about the benefit to the individual. It's about the benefit to the culture, right? It's that like the the cult the world doesn't owe me Dragon Ball Z abridged, but the world would probably be better off if it knew that it was happening, right? 
uh, in the sense that we're all passing information around to each other all the time. And there's a lot of things that sort of small niche groups of people are, are, are participating in. And some of them, I think, get, re- get to be a point where they're actually really special. And, and when you look around what's shared, right, what sort, of, what sort of jumps the rail, right, what sort of moves between circle and circle and group and group, I don't necessarily think it's always the things that are really special that, that end up kind of building the bridges between different – I mean readership communities would be one no, way to No, I mean describe, a, right? a little bit it's, it's the things that aren't special, right? It's, it's yeah. the things that are if, – if by special uh, – you mean most unique, right? Or right. or sort of most interesting, most interesting to a connoisseur. It's the lowest common denominator things that make. I mean, there, there's a reason that like cat videos are the are the like cute animals are are is the most popular thing on was yeah, second second the best. second yeah. second most popular thing <laughs> on the internet. The first most popular thing being a universal human experience as well, right? Like, are you that, talking about hate websites? <laughs> I mean. Sadly, are they uh, are they eclipsing? Like, uh, it it would be a sad sign of the times if hate websites eclipsed pornography in uh, in in traffic. Well, we all know that individual website traffic across the internet is down, and so it's more about social engagement with hate websites versus social <laughs> engagement with pornography. But, but 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 I mean, and I say this, but again, like there are all sorts make of sure, like things. Make sure to yeah. make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because, I mean, we just talked about girls. Girls, I think, is a good example of the opposite of what I just said, I guess, in that think pieces about girls run in wider circles than actually watching girls does. Right. Like uh, like yeah, more sure. people. Opi- opinions, yeah. opinions about Lena Dunham. Uh, yeah. So certainly opinions about Lena Dunham. Right. Were like magnitude orders of magnitude <laughs> bigger than people who watch her show, which yeah, is or, unfortunate. Or right? read her or read her writing or who have actually yeah. en- engaged with uh, with, you know, what she actually says as a as a writer and artist rather than as like a, what she has come to be co-opted to mean as a uh uh, as a cultural signifier, and yeah, this is i mean this is this is an interesting thing right i I feel and and you know uh you may have heard kind of a, a strange contradiction in uh what i 'm saying that like you know it 's good to it 's good to profess to love on the one hand and then also i 'm sort of defending the uh, I, also i 'm defending the um the right to keep things private, uh, mm-hmm. on the other hand, or the kind of the, the value, the social utility, I should say, of, of, um, of keeping things private. And, but, and I just like, I, I wonder, right? I wonder what would happen to, well, actually, we, we sort of know what, what's, what happens because we have seen it happen over and over again with things, you know, things like comic book fandom and the sort of the rage that's engendered by sort of old school or people who have been comic book fans since, let's say, before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or you can date it to whatever you want. Tim Burton's Batman or, or what have you, right? When the mass market, when these things suddenly become mass market uh, properties rather than rather than niche properties and and like uh you know like like gaiji's with the ring you know i can become invisible and slip into the message board and see what's going on among the hardcore lovers of uh, uh of dbz and and fist of the north star and and uh, or the 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 really hardcore lovers who uh, uh watch parody youtube channels dedicated to uh dragon ball um but the uh you know but it it might not be good for those communities or it it might fundamentally alter those communities uh to get to get the sort of attention that um to get the sort of attention that that you're talking about right like if yeah. if if everyone loved uh uh team four star and suddenly they were making like an adult swim 15 minute uh series right like uh and and then a number of things happened uh down the road like this might not be you know the the thing that you like uh, might have its character fundamentally altered by by that sort of uh by that sort of attention. And my, my point is not that that artist should toil in a kind of noble obscurity because that's crap. Um, my point is, the, my point is, uh, 
my point is, I guess, be careful what you wish for a, a mm-hmm. little bit, right? Um, uh, the, you, you, you quickly get to, if you kind of like carry out, if you extrapolate the, the thought experiment a few levels farther, you quickly get to synecdoche New York levels of <laughs> like self-involvement and mimesis. Um, when you think about, well, like the world should know about X and it should also know about Y. And it would be nice if, if A, B and C were valued alongside D, E and F, right? Like, uh, the, the, just cause there, there's sort of only there's sort of only so much mental space and, um, you know, and, uh, and were that to happen, what, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, remember what, I mean, everyone talks about there being only three channels and the sort of, uh, uh, unifying feeling, the kind of the, the sense of, uh, uh, community that was engendered by that scarcity. And yet, um, Surely abundance is better than scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And surely, uh, uh, surely, um, it was not just a force for a greater sense of community, but also a force for a kind of uh, homogenization and for a kind of cultural arm twisting to mm-hmm. to sort of get with the dominant program. Yeah. And and we're we're surely better off. Uh, we're surely better off in the world that we have now, even if some good things kind of slip under the radar. I'd like to tell you about uh, a little website founded in, uh, founded in um, 2008 by a, group of, <laughs> by a group of friends from college. Uh, and, and they don't have a, uh, you know, a lucrative deal with Comedy Central. And they don't have a 15-minute uh, Adult Swim uh, video series that they would be uh, capable of, of producing things. And the first thing that you would notice is uh, how the, the overthinking it parody of uh, all those genres would be superior to the real thing by, <laughs> by orders of magnitude. One last thing before I kick back to you. Um, it, it strikes me that that the positioning, having clicked around now in some of these YouTube videos, um, the the positioning of these Team Four Star uh, Dragon Ball Z parody videos is as Dragon Ball Z abridged, right? Yeah. And 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 in that, like, there's too much Dragon Ball Z to comprehend. You know, <laughs> just in that positioning, it's like we gotta boil this down. We gotta readers digest this stuff for yeah. you, uh, because, like, really, in order to the the in order to appreciate Dragon Ball Z, like, it's just too much to to chew and me- swallow and metabolize. Like, we gotta give it to you in in quick hits, and in that positioning alone is uh, is a sense of what the problem is. Mm, interesting. It's it's like Lego Batman in that respect. It's a way of like build, getting it down to its building blocks. So so you know what event came to mind, and and I don't think did we talk about this on the podcast? The and I don't. I'm not particularly interested in discussing the politics of it, but just that it happened, which was a couple weeks ago when PETA came out. Did we talk about this when PETA came out and criticized Warhammer? For having people wear fur in Warhammer, do you remember this? No, I was I was hung up on uh, a dog's purpose, and the, the... <laughs> that was your own private, like uh, your own private uh, wrong that must be righted. Was, <laughs> well, was I, did, I mean, I didn't really feel a need to get to get involved with it, but like the the sort of the bad they they did someone. I, it was probably Peta because like you know a, a lot of bad, it wasn't Peta, but yeah, it was, uh, was somebody it like well, it was it was people who were almost as bad then because like a lot of like tactics. If you actually care about animal rights, a lot of tactically bad animal rights discourse is originated in PETA. But um, but yeah, the the idea that like oh the way we're talking the the way we're talking about this um, not only not only fails to recognize what the actual important issues in in this uh, uh, you know the important and legitimate complaints uh, in this field are, but actually will harm the important and legitimate complaints <laughs> will so, be retrograde <laughs> to the cause of justice. So what so, what did they get on with Warhammer? Well, so so I mean it's it's like with uh, Dog's Purpose too, right? Which 
was that there was a doctored video made that made the impression that the dogs in a dog's purpose were being abused, right? And then kind of later findings kind of backed off of that. But the point was that that people weren't going out in droves to see a dog's purpose regardless. And so and it reminds me of um, what you said, right, which is that something that could be small when you expose it to a large number of people, it could also potentially be ruined. Uh, so what they did with Warhammer is in Warhammer – uh, there is a chapter of the Space Marines. So, okay. So, the Emperor of Mankind. Oh, good. Right, no, I'm sorry. I can't take an. I can't take another <laughs> description of a niche no. of a of a of a niche niche uh, <laughs> <laughs> niche. In the grim, dark future, there is only war, Matt. No, so there is blood, a blood for the blood god. So the so space marines right which have become a trope uh, largely because Blizzard ripped them off for StarCraft but because uh, StarCraft was originally supposed to be a Warhammer game I believe uh, which is obvious once you look at the two side by side uh, but uh, and once you realize there were orcs in in, in uh, Warcraft but at any rate uh, there's a chapter and space marines like from Aliens right they're they're in movies space marines now there's a chapter of space marines in the tabletop wargaming where you you buy a little you buy little dolls and and they and you paint them and you customize paint them and then you put them on tables and you roll dice and move them around and you do like uh, simulated warfare with them right and it's awesome and hilarious and very very niche right and there's a chapter of the space marines called the space wolves where and this is something that goes back to the 80s since they've been making these things where uh, where they earn their pelt. Right. Like at a certain point of their coming of age. And so a lot of the space wolves are wearing like wolf pelts over their super futuristic space marine armor and machine guns. Right. Uh, with skulls all over it. Um, and PETA was saying, hey, you know, Games Workshop, the company that makes Warhammer, you guys are normalizing the wearing of fur by having these uh, miniature figurines in Warhammer wear fur. So we're going to ask you to stop. Um, other things that the miniature figurines in Warhammer wear include uh, human skulls, human skin, uh, dismembered body parts, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, pa- uh, parasites infesting and taking over the bodies of their hosts and and, and all manner of horrific uh, man-crushing sorts of things. Like, the whole lore of Warhammer is phenomenally dark. It is It efforts to be as dark as possible. Like, we're, we're in none more black territory with regards to how dark things get in Warhammer. And, and the idea that the peculiar sin that needs to have the, the disinfecting sunlight of common righteousness shown upon it is that the space wolves are wearing fur while they're fighting against like the the maddening demons of the warp and the the ruinous powers of chaos right like uh is absurd it's absurd to anybody who's on the in-group for warhammer and knows what warhammer is about but a lot of people aren't in the in-group of warhammer and don't know what warhammer is about. no i mean like rhetorically it's it's actually very very clever and and you have to to i am no fan uh but you have to give them credit for a certain sense of of what will catch fire and what's what's happening is a kind of arbitrage right is a kind of discursive arbitrage where they are they're exploiting the gap between the in-group and the out-group to uh, capitalize on cultural meanings uh, that, as you say, the in-group would find ridiculous, but the out-group might be uh, on the fence enough or might be um, uh, lack enough knowledge to, to be able to dismiss out of hand, right? Right. Like they're, they're advancing a, a, a reading um, in an atmosphere of ignorance that, uh, you know, I, I, that uh, uh, seems to advance their, their agenda and they don't care about uh, Warhammer 40k fans, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's interesting, right? In that, um, because, and it's just interesting also to sort of consider grim dark fiction and its role in, in, in sort of social moral contexts because it seems so different than where the consensus culture is right, right now. Because it's like this is, there is a kind of slippery slope about like, you know, well, of course, Game of Thrones has a lot of rapes in it. What do you think happened back then? Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, George R. R. Martin has to tell the truth about the Middle Ages. The world is right? not a happy place. The world is full of suffering. Even, even the Buddha said that, <laughs> right? That life is suffering. So why are you a 
objecting to Game of Thrones portraying suffering, right? Uh, this real well, that goes back to all of our other conversations about kind of realness versus cruelty. Yeah, it's you not, know, you like, know, we, we we shouldn't at this point in the podcast. No, it's, we it's, shouldn't, that's we shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't dive down that I, I, that rabbit hole. But like, yeah, you're. I mean, what what you're talking about, and I think actually, like you said something. You said a, a code word, uh, a sociological code word, which is in group, right? Yeah. Before, and I think that that's actually a really good uh, set of tools for for uh dealing with you know um for dealing with this this kind of discourse and i, I would propose t- to say that you are you know that that any given person is a point in uh, a number of like overlapping or concentric or whatever circles um and and that you are a point on a on a Venn diagram of various kinds of in groups and out groups right and that like uh, i suppose the great moral heroes of all time are the ones that sort of uh, uh, the ones that push their sphere of concern out to the outermost reaches of that Venn diagram to encompass all of humanity or all of visible humanity or or uh, or what have you. But at, on a on a day to day level, you know, unless you're prepared right now to just start hunger striking and not stop, uh, pretty much uh, until the grim dark future where. Uh, war is the only reality uh the you know um that's not a practical way to run your to run your life and so you kind of there's a there's a process of sort of there's a process of of triangulation uh of sort of community triangulation right that that has to happen at, at all the uh sort of at all times when you're dealing with um when you're dealing with niche cultural properties and by the way like what isn't a niche cultural property uh anymore right like walking dead uh <laughs> high high seven or low eight figure low eight viewing figures right these are not friends or seinfeld numbers these certainly aren't uh Oh God, I don't know. I love Lucy numbers or whatever, you know, pick up mash numbers, right? Like, uh, you know, your, your dominant cultural, your dominant cultural forces look a lot like, like niche cultural properties to someone who was raised on the first golden age of television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a good point. Also blood for the blood God. <laughs> oh, and by the way, one one private – if you want to go deeper, if you want to go deeper than even Team Four Star, I'm not even going to off – I am not comfortable talking about it in public, but a great – great parody series by Bruva Alphabusa about Warhammer is If the Emperor Had a Text-to-Speech Device. And I highly, highly, highly recommend it for anyone with even a passing familiarity with Warhammer with the with the proviso that you can never tell anyone that I told you it was good because it is shameful and terrible. <laughs> it's my private self. That is from my private self to your private self. And don't tell Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> but... <laughs> but that's like you know i don't know that that's that those sorts of uh you know i don't know those sorts of private sharings are are the things that that bind communities together and and presumably uh they would be they would be mutual like uh i've been watching uh, uh or i was for a while watching uh reruns of gem and the holograms on netflix you know which oh, is yeah. like which is like my Warhammer 40k. In Does the- it hold up? Is your Warhammer in the grim in the grim dark future, in the glitzy glamorous neon clad future? There is only rock. Uh, no, there's only there's the only future is truly 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 outrageous. There's only war between the 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 holograms and the misfits, you know, that, who are dressed up in in frankly in what looks like fur trim. You know, it was a Ooh. it was a di- it was a different time. Um, Someone call the out group. The in group's having a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the uh um so the interesting thing to me about Je- i mean long story short uh gem and the holograms looking back on it as an adult is that i'm looking i'm used to looking back on like masters of the universe or gi joe cartoons or whatever and like being barely able to get through one for boredom uh because like the the way information is is repeated and repeated and repeated the way the way uh the plot is refreshed at every act break um you know, we're here at the, you know, we're here at the mansion and we're trying to put on a show, but, 
you know, we've run out of shrimp cocktail. And, and like how this is, you know, repeated with a, a slight variation five or six times throughout uh, the episode. By contrast, um, Gem and the Holograms is very, it, like there's a lot going on and uh, a lot going on that's not really underlined or highlighted. Uh, you just kind of have to cotton on to uh cotton on to what's going on now it's not the wire right like the uh <laughs> so yeah. few shows are <laughs> only, only one that i'm aware of yeah. uh the it's uh, fist of the north star <laughs> <laughs> but uh but but i uh, relative to other children's television of of the same time there's a there's a, a, a at least a modicum of of narratological uh respect for the audience and there you see and in that we we sort of share that and we we are bound you and i closer together in um we are bound closer together in bonds of friendship right all right so i i want to issue a challenge to the listeners uh of this podcast uh now now that you've heard uh pete and and me be vulnerable in the context of our relationship and our relationship with you you know we'd like to provide for you a space where you can do this as well so go to overthinkingit.com uh click on the the you'll see a little uh, a little card for this podcast near the top of the homepage click on show notes there Head into the show notes for this episode, into the comments down at the bottom, and uh, write a few sentences about a sort of niche property or something, you know, something that you're into that you don't think uh, a lot of people are gonna, uh, you don't think a lot of people appreciate or uh, that, that you think is, is sort of embarrassing or sort of uh, shows you, not, not in a negative light, but in a kind of a silly light in, in some way. You can do it anonymously if you want want you can uh uh if you're logged in you can log out or you can just leave a, a fake email and address you know uh uh yeah fake email and, and name i mean like indicate that you're a regular listener and that you know this is an anonymous con- comment or if you're truly ashamed you can email it to podcast at at overthinking com, and we will we will see it but the uh the uh, rest of the internet will not we want to know what uh we want to know um what you like and what uh, is going to be um you know what what sorts of things and I, I i bet i predict uh that we all have a lot more um we all have a lot more in common with one another than uh we had originally assumed pete i'm going to go out on a limb here and say that maybe we're all people and just need a little understanding. <laughs> what, what do you th- what do you think of that? Uh, I, I think is that Tennyson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, thanks, Pete, for uh, doing the overthinking podcast uh, yeah, with me. And is, yeah, and and um, all right, I got a I got a couple of YouTube playlists now queued up that that I got to get through. So we'll leave Uh-oh. it. <laughs> I, I, I blame me for nothing. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll leave it there and get back to you next week. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Break, break, break on they cold gray stones, O sea, and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. Oh, well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh, well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their heaven under the hill. But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break at the foot of thy crags. O sea, but to the tender grace of a day. Oh, my Wamushindaru! Blood splatter, blood splatter, blood splatter, blood splatter. See, I was thinking break, 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 break. Wiki, wiki, remix! (laughs) Break, 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 break. Oh, waves, break.